This is Race Capital with me, Naomi Isaac, where we interrogate racial narratives in our place, space, and time here in Richmond, Virginia, the former capital of the Confederacy. As universities across the nation and this Commonwealth of Virginia remove names and symbols connected to America's history of enslaving Black people, the University of Richmond is refusing to comply. But Black students at the University of Richmond have organized a response for the archives. Along with what seems to be a simple ask of removing names of enslavers off of UR campus halls, Black students are also demanding that their emotional welfare be taken seriously by solidifying break days, since you know, spring break was canceled, but also a demand to put the university's money where their mouth is by creating a fund to meet the unmet need of mental health support of Black UR students. With the University of Richmond's Board of Visitors refusing to budge on the demands of removing the names, the UR Black Student Coalition is now calling for a disaffiliation starting tomorrow, March 25th, 2021. So what is disaffiliation? Well, per the UR Black Student Coalition statement, they are encouraging all faculty, staff, students, and alumni who are in solidarity with the demands to disaffiliate from any university task force, student organizations, and fundraising by ceasing all uncompensated extracurricular public-facing work and programming which UR is in turn able to publicize and profit off of. The UR Black Student Coalition is encouraging faculty, staff, students, and alumni to make their disaffiliation statements public and have provided templates per the UR disaffiliation link tree that can be found in their Protect Our Web Instagram page. The UR Black Student Coalition has offered a place to upload individual and group disaffiliation statements and are accepting PDFs to be emailed to protectourweb at gmail.com. So race capital listeners, what are the demands from the black students at University of Richmond? And why is the board of trustees being so hesitant to remove the names from university halls? So stay tuned for the full download of this story. And it's a good one, y'all. As I interview Shira Greer, Jesse Amonkwa, Jordan Lofton, and Simone Reed from the UR Black Student Coalition Coordinating Committee, right after this week's Race Capital Reframe. Just as a caution and warning for our listeners, some of the stories featured in this week's Race Capital Reframe contain disturbing and graphic descriptions of the truths happening in the local, national, and international news to defend Black lives. You are listening to Race Capital with me, Kalia Harris. And me, Chelsea Higgs-Wise. And me, Naomi Isaac. On the week of Wednesday, March 24th, 2021. And this week, we are getting started with our Race Capital reframe with the Eviction Watch. There are 183 unlawful detainers on the books, with today, Wednesday, being the highest day of 58 unlawful detainers being heard in one day. Within one hour... 55 unlawful detainers will be heard from one property management company alone, KRS Holdings, also known as Greater Richmond Rentals. KRS Holdings has been in the news many times over the years for issues such as black mold and bed bugs. Just a reminder to our listeners that unlawful detainers are the first step a landlord takes to evict a tenant from their homes, and these legal proceedings have not stopped during the pandemic. 
Speaking of doing nothing different, Mark Robinson with the Richmond Times-Dispatch reports that the Richmond Redevelopment and Housing Authority told Creighton Court residents it would, quote, break ground next year on a long-promised redevelopment of the public housing neighborhood, end quote. The RRHA has asked the city for almost $7 million in capital funding for improvements to Creighton, saying that it is the precursor to building new homes and securing low-income housing tax credits, which play a critical role in financing the report. The U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development approved the Housing Authority's request earlier this month to demolish 192 units along Nine Mile Road, Bunchy Place, and even some on Creighton Road. Residents currently living in those units could begin moving as soon as the summer as demolition could begin coming this fall. Again, we know that this type of displacement is something that Richmond has never handled well in the past, losing people. We know that this was going to be a mixed income area, not for all of these people to come back. Only a few of them will. Not to mention, we have seen hundreds of people unjustly evicted from this housing community. And what about them? Yeah, our comrade Omari, who is a housing organizer in Richmond, made a really good point online that any type of crime that comes from this displacement will then be blamed on the people that are being displaced. And then more money, you know, goes back to police budgets and so on and so forth, reinforcing the cycle. And so I just think that's important for us to think about as we're looking forward to what what is going on. And in legislative news, the governor will sign the bills to abolish the death penalty in Virginia today at 2 p.m. Virginia will be the first state in the South to pass legislation abolishing the death penalty once this law goes into effect. Well, at least the state will have one less way to kill us. Legally. Moving into our final local news, community members came out in support of the family of Xavier Hill outside of the Goochland County Courthouse on Monday, March 22nd, after protesters, including Xavier's mom, were charged with trespassing at a previous protest by Goochland County Sheriff's deputies. The family, community, and organizations such as the Virginia NAACP continue to demand that Attorney General Mark Herring appoint a special prosecutor to look into Xavier's case and that all dash cam footage from that night be released to the public. Updates to the Campaign for Justice for Xavier Hill can be found on their official Instagram at Justice for Xavier Hill. And moving into national news, this week in our COVID watch, nationally, there have been over 30 million total cases of COVID-19 in the U.S., with 556,883 total deaths. So far, over 118 million doses of the vaccine have been administered. Biden's national goal is to have the vaccine available to all adults in the country by May 1st, though many states are reporting that they will be able to beat that deadline. There is still a great inequity and who is receiving vaccines as Black and Latinx people continue to top COVID infection and death charts and are not being vaccinated at the same rates. In Virginia, there are over 600,000 total COVID cases reported and 10,137 total deaths. We have exceeded 10,000 total deaths in Virginia from COVID-19, and this is a grim milestone. We are sending love to all of those who have lost someone due to this virus. The good news is that vaccinations are on the rise in Virginia. 
There are over 100,000 doses of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine being added to the state supply, and Pfizer and Moderna vaccinations are being distributed as well. The administration says that those eligible for phase 1B should be able to get their vaccine by mid-April before they move into phase 1C, and that Virginia is on track to exceed the national goal of May 1st. Pre-registration and more information about the vaccine is available at vaccinate.virginia.gov, as well as the Virginia Department of Health website. Well, moving into more vaccine news, a federally run clinic up in Philly that is responsible for administrating half of the city's daily shots began reserving half of its daily doses for walk-in vaccinations for residents from under-vaccinated neighborhoods, the Inquirer reports. In the first couple days of the new policy, the demographics of people receiving the vaccinations changed dramatically. The Philadelphia Department of Public Health released information late last week that indicated that the number of white residents receiving vaccinations at the site went down almost 20 percent, while the number of black residents getting inoculated increased with the change. Look at that. Look at that increasing access and seeing results. I wonder if anyone will mimic these tactics. Well, last week, White House Press Secretary Jen Pinsky confirmed that five White House staffers have been fired for disclosures of past marijuana use. The Daily Beast is reporting that dozens of young staffers have previously been suspended, asked to resign, or regulated to remote work due to prior marijuana use. Pinsky said that the White House is working on an updated policy. Sadly, at the end of the day, marijuana use was the reason that people lost their jobs due to this failed policy and what... I consider a failed promise upon the Biden administration. It don't even make sense that staffers who are not responsible for the welfare of all the people across the empire are fired for smoking weed when President Barack Hussein Obama said that he smoked marijuana when Kamala Harris, Vice President Kamala Harris, talks about how she used to smoke weed or tried it in college. And now they're able to just run, run the globe, run global affairs. And these staffers are being fired. And it makes us question how open they're really going to be when crafting legislation to allowing people with past marijuana use, past marijuana crimes to be free or to be in the industry at all. We shall see because the, the legislation they passed last year intentionally left people out at the end of the day, last minute to make a compromise. Interesting. More from the South in Atlanta, the husband of a woman who died in last week's mass shootings has recently revealed that after surviving the attack, he was handcuffed and held by police for four hours. He didn't learn that his wife, Delania Ashley Young, had died for hours. Mario Gonzalez said, quote, I don't know whether it's because of the law or because I'm Mexican. The simple truth is that they treated me badly, end quote. Gonzalez and his wife had gone to the spa together for massages and were in separate rooms when the gunman opened fire. They had married over the summer and had a baby girl. A total of eight people died in the attacks on three Asian-owned spas last Tuesday. Seven of the victims were women, including six of Asian descent. Even in these instances, is police violence still a piece of it? That story has definitely been sitting with me since I heard it. Finally, in immigration news, Democracy Now! reports that there are over 15,000 unaccompanied migrant children in U.S. custody. 
Over 5,000 of those are being held in customs and border protection jails. ACOS reports over 800 children have been jailed for over 10 days, a huge jump in numbers over the last week. The Biden administration has sharpened its rhetoric and is insisting that the so-called U.S. border is, quote, closed, end quote, and is urging Mexico and Guatemala to take action on the flow of migrants. Not only that, but they are maintaining a Trump-era policy to deny asylum on public health grounds. The Department of Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas said, quote, the border is closed. We are expelling families. We are expelling single adults. And we've made the decision that we will not expel young, vulnerable children, end quote. Y'all, I don't really know what to say. I mean, I know we pretty much said during the election that this was going, you know, we knew that this was going to occur, but to just see it happening before us is just, I'm frustrated. That's, that's all. I want to know, are we going to have the pictures and images of the same cages I saw all over the liberal social medias and media pushing for change now that it's under a Biden administration? Because I saw the pictures, they look like cages to me. Yeah, I just don't understand how many more times we will have to go around this hamster wheel when what we know is that people need to be free. And I have a question of the decision not to expel vulnerable children. Does that mean that they're separating families and keeping the children here and sending parents back? These are just questions I don't know. This is why I need people to stop using these kids as their political talking point. And when I say people, you know, I also am referring to the liberal left because they will use these children in their lives and their family and their pain to promote their candidates who go on and do the same harm, if not worse. And like this is we're watching child separation. We are watching the U.S. government steal people's children from them. Because they're basically saying, I mean, you can go back to your country with all of the problems that you're facing, but we'll raise your kid because we'll raise your kid better. And we know that that's not true. And that's ahistorical. Well, y'all know what we say on Race Capital. Free them all. Moving into international news in Africa, Kenya has run out of ICU beds as the country is dealing with a surge in COVID-19 cases. The country's director general for health shared earlier this week that the results of a national study showed the presence of both the South African and UK variants. Many doctors have taken to social media to share their heartbreaking experiences on the front lines, BBC reports. The problem of just vaccination hoarding that all these wealthy colonizing countries like this is the end result is that, you know, all the oppressed nations basically suffer so that, you know, vaccines can sit up in warehouses and collect dust in America and across Europe. Yeah. And there's some states in the U.S. like Idaho that are actually headed from a need for vaccines to a surplus. So like you're saying, Naomi, they quite literally are going to be sitting on shelves when they could be going to get use. And our last story for this week's Race Capital and International News speaks to that. The Director General of the World Health Organization is calling the growing vaccine inequity between rich and poor nations, quote, a moral outrage, end quote. He has critiqued how some countries like the U.S. and Canada are racing to vaccinate their entire populations while healthcare workers, older and high risk individuals and poorer nations go unvaccinated. The Director General said, quote, the gap between the number of vaccinations and administered in rich countries and the number of vaccines administered through COVAX is growing every single day and becoming more grotesque every single day. 
So seriously, something for us to keep our eyes on. The COVID watch does not stop here on Race Capital. Stay safe, wear a mask. And stay tuned as we interview four members from the coordinating team of the Black Student Coalition from the University of Richmond. Shira Greer, Jesse Amanqua, Jordan Lofton, and Simone Reen. You're listening to Race Capital on WRIRLP 97.3 FM, Richmond Independent Radio. Stay tuned. Uh, Today's guests on the show come to us from the so-called University of Richmond, and they are telling a story that is a... an interesting one for the time, for what we talked about last summer, as well as what this fallen capital of the Confederacy, Richmond, Virginia, has been experiencing for over the 400 plus years. So why don't we allow my guests to introduce themselves? Uh, Shira, why don't you go first? Sure. My name is Shira Greer. I'm a junior at the University of Richmond. Um, I'm studying American Studies And in the past, I've also been involved with the university's race and racism project, as well as the Africana Studies Student Committee to get an Africana Studies program on campus. I'm Jordan Lofton. I'm a junior here at the university. I am a rhetoric and communications major. I'm president of the Black Student Alliance here um, and now a member of the UR Black Student Coalition. Hi, I'm Simone Reed. Um, I'm a sophomore at the university. Um, I'm studying sociology. And um, yes, I'm also a member of the Black Student Coalition Coordinating Committee. Hi, my name is Jesse Amankwa. I'm a senior at the University of Richmond. I study political science and I am a member of the Black Student Coalition. Okay, so there you all have a few demands that I'm going to have you all list out for us. But one of the ones that gets our main attention, because it reminds us of a lot of what's happening across the country is this name change of buildings. So what is the building and what's it called now? And tell us a little bit about that first demand. So with that first demand, that was really the announcement that sparked our entire movement on campus. Basically, in April of 2019, we have two student governments, one for the Historically Men's College and one for the Historically Women's College, but both student governments released a resolution calling on the university to remove the names of Robert Ryland, who has an academic building named after him, Ryland Hall. And he was the first university president, but he was also an enslaver. And then Douglas Southall Freeman, who was a trustee, very well-respected member of the UR community as well, but he was a Confederate apologist, a eugenicist, a segregationist. He dedicated a lot of his writings and his energies towards pushing those causes as well, and he has a dorm on campus named after him. So the student governments called for those names to be removed in April of 2019, and at the end of February of this year, the university finally made a statement on that and said they had decided to keep the names on those buildings But they were also going to add in John Mitchell Jr., who was a editor of the Richmond Planet, and they decided to add his name alongside Douglas Allo Freeman's to make the dorm's name Mitchell Freeman Hall, and then Ryland Hall's name would remain unchanged. So basically with that, it sparked a lot of outrage among Black students. In particular, we have a group chat for many of us on campus, and, you know, we were going off all day. We were like, what is this decision? This is terrible. How could they do that? Especially in this current moment when, as we all know, we've seen across the country, but particularly in Richmond, we've seen names get changed, street names in Richmond. We've seen the monuments on Confederate Avenue be taken down as well. So in that current political context, the university decided that they were going to basically do the opposite and leave those names up 
in the name of quote unquote, preserving our school's history and causing us to confront it rather than run away from it or ignore it or erase it. And we as black students feel very strongly that keeping those names up does not achieve that goal. And so that's what really pushed us to demand that those names be changed again and start, you know, a movement on our campus as well. So why do you all think that there's particular resistance to these name changes? Because I have some guesses, but, um, you know, I actually attended University of Richmond my freshman year and I stayed in Marsh. I was one of the first uh, women to be on the UR side. I'm that old. My questions go back to who was the Ryland family, who was the Freeman family and how close are these ties still there? And um, another question that came up to mind was, was John Mitchell Jr. a name that you all had brought to them as replacement names? How did they come up with uh, John Mitchell Jr.? So for John Mitchell Jr., they had Dr. Lornette Lee um, do the research on, on the name and the ties to Freeman. And then the board, with the president's announcement, decided that it would be best to attach those two names together since they had a close relationship and them kind of butting heads in terms of the writing and things that they would write with each other as Mitchell was an abolitionist and Freeman was an enslaver. So they decided to bring those names together to spark conversation instead of about white supremacy and abolitionism, instead of erasing Freeman's name completely, because if the name was erased completely, the conversations would not happen. Basically, they went back and forth a lot in their respective newspapers and their respective publications you know, attacking each other's ideas and that. So they sort of, like Jordan mentioned, from the institutional history reports, which that was their original response after the 2019 student government resolutions. Their response was to, you know, of course, create a committee to do more research to discuss this as if we didn't already know what we needed to know to have those names taken down. But that was sort of the decision that they made just because they both had a dialogue through their respective writings, things like that on similar issues, with Mitchell, of course, pushing back against much of Freeman's rhetoric concerning segregation and eugenics and things like that. So they had that sort of dialogue. And so they decided to put those names together, like Jordan was saying, for that sort of tension. Um, yeah. And I was going to add to that, just saying, like, I think that kind of fits into that larger frame of like neoliberalism at our school and like the idea that we can just talk about things and we can discuss it and we can just look at things from, from a certain lens and that will help us kind of advance our goals rather than actually doing something like materially to benefit us. And I think, of course, the resistance is coming from the board of trustees. Their job is to protect the money of the university. They're sitting there kind of trying to make sure that it doesn't seem like we have power over them, basically. Like it doesn't seem like we can do something that's powerful enough to change this way of things here. And I will say this is another, you know, guess that maybe why they're doing this. You mentioned, you know, maybe perhaps the Freemans and the Rylands involvement. From what we know and from what the Board of Trustees and your administration has said, it's not a decision that's being made about money. It's not like that is sort of the rationale that they're, you know, money is still tied up in the university. It's really just this line that they're pushing about to remove these names would be to erase our history. And in order for us to educate our students, we have to leave these names up, which none of us believe in that really. Um, but that's sort of the line they're going with. And, you know, I think a lot of us as students sort of wonder if it is because they're worried about their own names being taken down. You know, I mentioned this, Paul Queely, the rector of the University of Richmond, Board of Trustees in the past had a record of making, you know, problematic comments, sexist, homophobic, things like that. And that has been something that has been reported on. So that's just well known, I think, among a lot of UR students. And so, you know, I think we do wonder if it is, you know, him sort of trying to preemptively keep his own name up at the university because he's got his name on multiple buildings on campus. 
Just this week, we've seen somebody has been taking blue paint and painting over some of these problematic names. So it's happened to, you know, Mitchell Freeman Hall. They took off Freeman's name on that. And that blue paint was up for a while, but eventually the sign was removed. I'm not sure by UR or possibly, you know, by somebody else. That sign has been removed. We also saw paint put on the Queely sign, Boatwright sign, the Moore Hall sign. T. Justin Moore was a segregationist who was a proponent of massive resistance in Prince Edward County. We've seen a lot of vandalism on campus as well. And so, you know, it seems, I think a lot of us assume that it probably is students. And so students are sort of pushing back in that way as well. And so, you know, it almost seems like this doubling down on refusing to change names is perhaps him protecting himself and protecting his own names on those buildings. And uh, with the vandalism of the names, Quilly's name was cleaned up within 24 hours of the vandalism, while Mitchell Freeman's name, that was covered for one week. They also increased the URPD surveillance of that area around Quilly specifically. So that would make sense that the current folks in power are continuing to protect themselves by protecting this uh, quote unquote heritage. Um, You know what sticking Mitchell's name next to Freeman reminds me of? Putting Arthur Ashe on Monument Avenue. It reminds me that we often do this thing where instead of number one, meeting the demand, that we come with this compromise that it does not come with equity. It does not come with a material benefit and nor does it even uh, correct the narrative. So how do you all think that University of Richmond's choices and the students' responses now, you all call it vandalism. I mean, that to me is like public art, right? This is narrative change. Hello? Like this this is good trouble in my definition. But how do you all feel like University of Richmond response is the institution's response, and now the students' response fit into the historical dynamic of University of Richmond and also uh, the city and space of Richmond, if you can comment on that at all. Interestingly enough, um, and guys, correct me if I'm wrong, there hasn't really been university response as to like the public art, as you would say. We've kind of just been seeing it pop up on campus and our school's newspaper kind of reports on it. And that's how we usually find out through their Instagrams. And so it's very interesting to me that they have not said anything specifically about about that. It's just been kind of been seen. And in the past few days, I've been seeing tours go on. Interestingly enough, which is kind of great for them, the names that are covered, they don't, the tour guides don't go past that. They don't, you don't, you really won't see that if you go on a tour and of the residence halls, you really won't see the defacing of the names. So I think they're trying to do their best to cover it up, especially not releasing an official statement about it, but we can all see it, especially the the university's newspaper and the students, so. I think in the context of the University of Richmond, the activism has kind of been swept under the rug as educational experiences in ways that students are not accepting anymore. When the Africana Studies Committee met, I. Um, was not a part of that group, but I saw how much pushback that they got when they were able to make progress. You know, they were handed, you know, awards, things that made it seem like it was a collaborative effort, right? But it was really the students on the Africana Studies Committee and their supporters that were pushing. This is an instance where the University of Richmond cannot pretend that students are collaborating with administration. This is a moment where there's clarity, right? There's 
there's public art, like you said, right? And that is addressing the climate in ways that you can't pretend about. And I also will say that, like, apparently I was reading this timeline of history of race and racism at UR. And um, in 1972, the first couple of Black students who were there, because the school integrated, I think, in 1969, correct me if I'm wrong, but so they had to push for Black faculty. They had to push for all of these things that they needed. And it's like, we're still in that same position right now today. We've had to push for everything that we needed and it just shows to, like, in this long context of the university, just choosing the side of white supremacy and choosing not to give us what we need, not to do that on purpose because they just don't really care about our needs or our well-being. So, and it takes us coming forward, us having to rally together, us as students, teenagers, young adults coming up and being the bigger people. It also goes to show for what nearly 50 years, 72 was nearly 50 years ago, how Black students couldn't just be students. We have to be activists. We have to be people creating literal departments. Like Shira and her peers literally created an entire department. And the university gets to take credit for that and not even mention Shira's name once or her other peers. And so there's just this constant disrespect and disregard of, one, our, our well-being as people and as students. And to just not regarding us as people to be listened to for the Dr. Kretcher to say to one of my peers in Africana Studies Department will never happen to their face. And to now sit in an, in an email and revel and be proud of the fact that the department is here, that's a slap in the face. Um, okay, hold on. So Dr. Crutcher and everyone that doesn't know, University of Richmond's Dr. Crutcher is black and University of Richmond loves to talk about they got a black president. But you're telling me that this man looked at a student and said that this school will never have an Africana studies. Yep, and there was actually just um, an article released about it in the student newspaper, and and just some clarifications. It was 1968 when the first um, residential Black student came to UR, Barry Green is his name, and there were also a couple other at the University of Richmond before that. um, I believe in 1964, I want to say, they enrolled a couple of Black students at some of their satellite campuses, in graduate programs, I believe, but in terms of undergraduate um, integration, that was 1968 when you saw the first Black student on campus. Um, And then in terms of Africana Studies, um, I do want to make clear that it is a program and not a department that has been approved. We originally pushed for a department, and there was basically no institutional support for that. Um, As Jordan was saying, when we talked to administration, they were basically like, absolutely not. After we released our proposal, they were like, you can make a minor or a concentration in an existing department. We were like, that's not what we asked for. Eventually, we did have faculty supporters who pushed for a program that way through the faculty and passed through faculty senate, but it is a program, so mainly cross-listing existing courses from other departments, as well as a couple Africana study-specific courses rather than a department. 72 was when Barry Green graduated. I got those dates mixed up, but yeah, 68 is when he came, and then he graduated in 72. And, And just to bring this all in context, too... Number one, if it's a department or a program for a president to look at you in the face and say, it's never going to happen. And here it is. This is a good example of how we free ourselves and always have, right? One of the things that you all put on social media that really grasped my heart was the idea that you all are not just students, but also the leaders of the programs of the groups. And you all have to take these leadership roles and create your own spaces in order to just get what you need. And this is what Black folks do in every space that we have to hold. So I just want to say big kudos to not listening to the top authority, even a black man when he says it's not possible because we see that it's possible. So tell me a little bit more about your other grievances 
And um, if you don't mind really quickly, just go through the, all of the demands for the listeners to hear. Uh, the first demand is that the names of Robert Ryland and Douglas Southall Freeman be taken off of their respective buildings on campus. The second demand is for expanded academic accommodations, with the first part of that demand being that the Faculty Senate pass a proposal for students to elect to take one course for credit or no credit rather than a standard letter grade if they wish, which was actually just passed on Friday. They went ahead and passed that part of the demand. The other part of the demand, though, was that um, should breaks be canceled in future semesters because this year spring break was canceled, that they have, they've come up with wellness days um, to sort of supplement that, but they only gave, I believe, two um, this semester compared to, you know, the five days we would have had off for spring break. So we want to see equal number of wellness days to what would be in that standard break um, for students to get that rest because it's basically been a marathon semester for students without really any break. They had a quote unquote light week where professors were supposed to assign less work, decrease the workload that week, but students across the board were saying they have tests, they have exams, they have projects to do. A lot of professors just chose to ignore that university sanctioned light week. So pushing and forward in future semesters, you know, should the situation with COVID not improve, having an equal number of wellness days to what would be in a standard break um, during the semester. And then the third demand is for the creation of a fund for Black students to access off-campus mental health resources, just because a lot of Black students, I think, now more than ever are experiencing stress and trauma with the pandemic and everything going on with that. And we have a really great counseling center, um, counseling and psychological services on campus, but you know they are limited in the work they can do. And there are only two Black staff members who do a phenomenal job, which we always want to emphasize that because they really are doing great work at the university and have supported so many students, but ultimately, some students will need more support than what they can give. You know, there's only two of them. And while they do so much for the university, that might not meet everyone's needs. And so we're looking for a fund for students to go off campus, particularly until they diversify their staff in counseling and psychological services more, because I do believe there's the two Black staff members and then one other person of color, but the rest of them are white. And while that looks better compared to a lot of other campuses, you know, I think ultimately on the ground, what students need is access to culturally competent mental health care and providers that look like them and share their experiences and their backgrounds. So those are our three demands. And the three demands that we're pushing for, you know, I think there's such minimal demands. Like we are asking for the bare minimum here. We're asking for a little bit of academic accommodations, not even like as far as they went in the spring with allowing students to take all courses, credit, no credit, if they wanted, which some universities are still continuing for their students. We just asked for one course. With the names being taken down, that is something peers across Virginia, I know VCU just passed, I believe it was 27 of their Confederate symbols, monuments to be dealt with. JMU just took down, I believe, three of their dorm names that were named after Confederate leaders. Especially in this current moment, it isn't something that is outlandish. We're seeing this happen all across the country, especially since the resurgence of the Black Lives Matter movement this summer. So we're really asking the university to go with their peers in that. And then in terms of mental health services like that is something I think that is being prioritized across the board. And we're really starting to have that conversation surrounding mental health and realizing how important that is to our well-being. And the school has tons of discretionary funds that they could choose to allocate towards this. School has a three, nearly $3 billion endowment, I want to say. And, you know, while, of course, that endowment money is the money they would use for something like this, they have discretionary funds that they can use for this. So really what we're asking for are three very basic demands. We could go so much further, and we do hope that our work with this is a building block for students who come after us 
make their own demands on the university and to improve their experiences in that way as well. But what we're asking for right now is the bare minimum. And we're seeing so much pushback towards it from the university. And so really quickly, you were asking for the removal of the names, some rest days and some money for some mental health services. Yep. And um, the credit, no credit um, for students this semester, which was passed already. Okay. So again, you all making demands, them meeting them and why this types of organizing does work and what you're doing is what our ancestors have been doing in the space forever and why we have anything that's on the table now, right? Why did you all choose these demands specifically? Um, I can speak to um, the credit, no credit is something that, you know, just working in mental health for so long um, and my mental health being in complete disarray for the first semester, I was struck that some of my, um, my peers' schools had academic accommodations for them and I was expected to perform as if an uncle hadn't passed or, um, you know, which is disproportionately hurting our communities, you know, with the COVID and everything. And, and I was just like, wow, like, this is insane. Like, something has to be done. And for the mental health, culturally aware counselors, there is just such a large information gap between what students know, Black students know about CAPS and what is available at CAPS, which is our career in psychological services. And, you know, just brainstorming with these good folks over here, you know, we were able to develop something to write and, and, and push forward. That the demands and how we came to them, it was very organic. You know, after we received the letter from President Crusher at the end of February saying that they would not be taking the names of Rylan and Freeman down. As we mentioned earlier, we have a Black student group chat on campus and we were all going off in that. And then one of our other members of sort of the coordinating committee, which this is all very loosely organized on campus, the UR Black Student Coalition is really just a collective of all Black students who are in support of this. And us as the coordinating committee is just a very unofficial type of thing. But one of our other members, Kayla Corbin, was like, let's have a meeting and let's discuss this and let's figure out how we're going to push, number one, obviously, for the names to be taken down, but then also see what other demands students have and what else students need in this moment. And so we had a meeting together with some of the other Black students on campus. And, you know, we talked and this was sort of what came out of it. These were sort of our top three demands that we felt we could advocate for and get past fairly quickly, just because we do want to see something successful. I think at the University of Richmond, there isn't a lot of student activism. And that's something, you know, working on the racism, racism project, that is something that students have echoed throughout, you know, talking with alumni that there's never really been a culture on campus where students have felt the need to rise up, make demands, things like that. It's always been a very suppressive culture. The podcast I made for the Race and Racism Project was called Culture of Complacency. And I think that's really something that I felt on campus as well. So what we wanted to do also with this campaign was not only get our three demands passed, but show for future students and students coming out after us that this is something that is achievable. And so we were really looking for three demands that we could get past that were clear that made sense because you know I think some of the pitfalls of other student activism movements at other campuses have been it is hard to you know get uh, information and to push for that like for example with increasing faculty and staff diversity that I think is a harder demand to get past but this one is pretty it's very cut and dry and so we wanted to have three very cut and dry either you do this or you don't demands that can be met to show students as well that this is something that is possible for them and it's possible to change your experiences where you are. Like Shira said, it was very organic. Um, and it was more than just like 
us having a rap session where we would just complain, we were just all like, let's do something. Like we were kind of like sick and tired of being sick and tired, especially with like this semester, there's a few more people on campus than last semester. And so I feel like there was just a lot of more momentum to to do more. And it's it's been it's been a ride, but I wouldn't have it any other way. I think having working with my peers on this, I say it all the time, nobody got us but us. Even though it's hard and even though it, it is really taxing to your mental health and it's really draining, but we always, always check in with each other how we're doing. We take breaks if we need to, but we're working and uh, we haven't stopped. Something that we say on the show all the time is that we keep us safe. Shira, would you mind really quickly sharing for the listeners, what was the Race and Racism Project and what happened to it? So the Race and Racism Project started in, I believe, 2015, the fall of 2015, um, really as a project to investigate our institutional history. It's something on campus. Our campus is sort of interesting. We don't actually have our own university archives. They're tied up with the Virginia Baptist Historical Society's archives. And so that has sort of been a barrier, I think, in recovering our own institutional history, having our archives not um, being solely our own, but being housed with their collection as well. So really the project started to interrogate our university history and to start to really have that dialogue about it. You know, obviously the project started before I was a student at UR, but from what I've heard and what I um, have experienced, it wasn't really something that was being talked about. So the Race and Racism Project really brought that to the forefront. So it was a pilot project, I believe, I think they said the pilot period from its beginning until 2019, which was the summer I worked on the project. And basically at that point, they had the Presidential Commission on University History and Identity. But they were tasked with deciding what the future of the project would be after this sort of pilot phase. And so during this pilot phase, we had a dedicated project archivist, Irina Rogova, who was phenomenal and really did the work of spearheading projects in terms of the archival work we were doing. And then she also started an oral history program with mainly alumni of color, but also faculty as well. We were ranching out into that. And so she did a lot of the work with that project and was really the main one spearheading the project and keeping it going. Well, the committee that was tasked with figuring out what was to be done with the project decided we don't need a project archivist anymore. We're going to hand it off to a faculty member and just have a faculty director for the project and really sort of transition more into institutional history courses and things like that, rather than the typical summer work that we had and really that being the main focus of the project. Um, They wanted to move it more into courses and make it more, I guess, part of the culture at the University of Richmond, I think was sort of the, the justification they were kind of using, but they got rid of her position, which we have a faculty director now and he is wonderful, Dr. McGowan, very passionate about the project, but I think losing that dedicated person whose only job was to work on the project really has been a detriment to the project and its work because obviously as a faculty member, he's got so many other things going on. You know, his main duty is to teach his courses, of course. So the project is still ongoing, but it's in my eyes in a much weaker state than it was before. And it's less of a force on campus just because they lost that support we so desperately needed. And Irina in particular was just a phenomenal person on campus, a phenomenal staff member. She really cared about students and she really cared about the project. And so she was responsible for a lot of the program's successes And so, you know, going forward, while Dr. McGowan's work is great, and I don't want to discredit that at all, it has been left in a weakened state because we don't have that dedicated person working on the project anymore. And they just terminated her role without even really much, much warning either. 
I had actually met Irina in 2019. Everyone remembers the whole blackface yearbook thing with our governor. And what we decided to do was take a whole bunch of people's money and pay black HBCU students that wanted to learn and understand about what was happening on PWIs historically. And it was because of this project and the work and the access that was created over the years that was just open up. And she just opened up her books and allowed us to come on in and learn and look at these yearbooks from the 60s the 70s, the 80s, y'all, that was wild. And then just later that summer, next thing you know, in my terms, they defunded the program. I mean, that's what happens when you take money from the staff member and now it's just integrated into somebody else has already got a full caseload. And again, nothing to that person, but we understand what that's going to mean for a program, what that means for the power of using this history for current movements as well. And again, how there has been this recurring of erasure of Black movements, of Black history, and particularly, as you mentioned before, that you all don't have your own archive. And so it does make it a much harder to bring out this history and to show the repetitive nature of nothing is getting better. Just like Reconstruction, you just recriminalize Black folks in a different way and cut off resources from us. And you all even mentioned something that I didn't I definitely didn't miss about increasing police presence, which means going to increase police money, particularly around certain symbols and people. Um, and that's, that's a level of intimidation to continue to oppress your voice and to keep this particular space very oppressive in nature. And again, Mullen, because I have these certain experiences, y'all, I was in University of Richmond in 2002 and 2003, and it was a super oppressive place. The reason why I left is because I was in the Will program and it was really cool. I was like, yeah, let's let's do a, a Sojourner Truth speech for March. Yeah. And wanted to do uh, a reenactment of the speech in Tyler Commons. During lunchtime, they told us it was going to be too disruptive and that we needed to do it at a different time. Disruptive. I am 18 years old, young. I'm like, all right, cool, fine. Let's move it to early where no one's going to be in the Commons. Okay. And then what actually happened that day is when the young Republicans held a affirmative action bake sale where for $1, white students would buy baked goods and 80 cents as students of color. And they did it during lunchtime, during the same time, CNN, MSNBC, every, I mean, worldwide news. This is back when affirmative action was really big and, and, and being confronted um, that it was just a handout and we didn't deserve to be there. And so this oppressive space that you mentioned, I mean, I grew up in Richmond, Richmond is my home. And so going to the University of Richmond, I had no idea that they, you all literally call it the UR bubble, right? It is not part of the Richmond city. It is, is built that way, it is on purpose. You all are working in a very secluded space within a larger oppressive space for black folks in the city of Richmond. So what is your next plan to get your school to meet your demands? So on March 25th, we are planning for disaffiliation and we are asking students to cease involvement in university task forces, student organizations, fundraising. We're not only asking students, but alumni, faculty as well to cease involvement with any type of university affiliated organizations or events, anything that would give the university good publicity or anything that we would do that would serve the university. So basically we're cutting off the university's access to our labor. Um, we've gotten a lot of a lot of support from students from everywhere, non-Black students um, included. And so 
we're, we've just, we're just asking everyone to participate. And then this way, the university will, will see that we're, we're able to disrupt, that students are not powerless. We're able to disrupt their day-to-day lives and how they see the university and how it operates because we're the ones keeping it afloat. The fact that it is going to be a hit, like if like the people who are in solidarity with us who are mostly going to be students of color, mostly going to be the campus leaders and what like black students and other students of color, like we make up the most of the people who are doing the work here on campus. And that's because it's frankly, most of the white students, especially those who come from wealthy backgrounds, which is also most of them, it's like they don't feel the need to have their voices represented because their voices are represented. They are the voice. We have to be out here always pushing and pushing and pushing. It's not fair that we're pushing so hard, but we also have like so much, like just everyone feels suffocated. I know like that's just a feeling that is completely echoed by all Black students on campus. So we're going to need, solidarity is going to really show that like we have the power that they don't think that we have. They don't want to give it to us, but we have it. Well, first of all, this disaffiliation strategy is dope. Love it. I think it's, when I saw it, I was like this, this right here. And can you clarify really quickly that you all are not asking people not to go to class, right? Not to stop research. This is the particular, Jesse, would you mind just clarifying that quickly? Right. Like we are not asking people to disaffiliate from their jobs or their academic courses, their, their varsity, you know, division one sport, because that does affect their scholarship. We're just asking students to stop with any public facing work that the institution can use to capitalize off of their image, their likeness, um, as well as their efforts. And I think just going off of that, that is also, I think by design as well, that we're not necessarily, and you know, maybe in the future, um, class strikes and things like that might happen. But I think really what we're really looking for here is the ability to go to school and learn and get our degrees in an environment that doesn't feel so hostile, in an environment where we can feel at least some semblance of support from the university, at least where we don't have to go to classes in buildings named after slave owners and sleep in dorms that are named after segregationists and eugenicists. Really, we just want a college experience, I think, that, you know, fills us up and that is vibrant and that is rich and, you know, is everything that we thought it would be coming onto campus, going to college, because I think it's presented at such an idyllic time and a time, you know, where you spend a lot of time growing and developing as a person. But I think at least from my personal experiences, I felt so stifled here. I felt like I haven't been growing as a person. I feel like most of the time it's just extremely stressful to be a student on this campus. It feels very repressive on campus. It is culture of complacency. And so really we are just wanting, I think, at the end of it all, to just be able to go and be a student and enjoy our college experience in peace. Yeah, and just adding on to that, like, I feel like I always say, like, it just looks like the white students are having the time of their lives. Like, they have no stress, nothing on their shoulders. They're just living so happy. So, and we're over here, like, in a just completely different situation. It does not feel like we go to the same school. Like, that's that's what I, like, I want to be able to be free like that. I want to be able to feel no stress like that. They are literally outside of my window right now, sitting on the grass, you know, just having a good time. Um, Like I hear them at night partying it up in a pandemic, may I add, while I'm sitting here making sure I get my stuff in on time because I'm behind on work because I'm I'm doing this work that's so important to me. And so 
there's a lot of sacrifices that especially students of color have had to make have had to make especially with their social lives because we're fighting just to live at this point just to be able to enjoy being here and so yeah it is it is really discouraging but we do still appreciate those who are allies who have been really standing with us in solidarity and, and really um making sure that we're good too and i really appreciate those yeah, I just want to add on, um, I definitely don't want to discredit the work and I really want to lift up, you know, the Office of Multicultural Affairs, our Office of Common Ground, the Center for Civic Engagement. There are some really phenomenal people who have been advocating for us and always have, and they're always supporting us. But even with that, it's still not enough for us to feel like we belong at this university, for us to feel like this is somewhere we want to be, like this is an enjoyable experience, you know, even with all that work and we appreciate it so much it's not enough. And I think that's really what we're trying to bring to the forefront with these demands. You know, we need something broad-based from the university to make these choices and to stand up for us because, you know, we've got some of those allies in those offices and, you know, certain faculty members as well, but it isn't enough. It's not, we're still having terrible college experiences to be quite frank about it. You know, I don't know a single black student who hasn't thought of transferring. We've all thought about it all the time. And it's really just because this is how they got us here merit scholarships and financial aid. They have really great programs in terms of that. And that's how they all got us here. And that's the only reason we stay. Otherwise, I think if money were no object, we'd all be gone. Shira, look, I'm gonna tell y'all the way I wrote to Longwood and begged them for those scholarship dollars that they offered me when I first and got the hell out of there. But I even still had to work on campus at UR that summer before I could even afford to leave. So I hear you. I am really just standing strong with you all and really want to know how can people outside of the university uh, institution continue to support you all? Definitely continuing to uh, follow our social media page on Instagram, protect uh, our web, sharing the petition, asking friends of the university to sign it, alumni as well, reaching out to alumni, continuing to just share it and be very vocal about it. Like you said, we do live in this kind of bubble. And it's hard sometimes to get the word out because we are very secluded from the rest of Richmond. Um, but we have been uh, speaking to a lot of alumni who are now in that greater Richmond area who are able to get to get that word out. So. And I want to just emphasize, um, you don't have to have any connection or affiliation with the University of Richmond to sign. Our petition is open to everyone. We'd love to have community support on that as well. Yeah, and I was going to ask anything specifically because I do know that there are tons of Black alumni that have had these same grievances for a while, and it would be interesting and and really great too if they would step up in these moments and come back and and say no, this is this is what's been needed for a long time, especially because you all are really asking for the bare minimum, the bare bare minimum. So there is a petition that people can sign, and where can people find that petition? That petition can be found at tinyurl.com slash protectourweb, all sort of one word, dash sign. Um, and then in terms of alumni support, we are asking alumni to stop donating to the university, to stop participating in those fundraising events and those alumni weekend events, reunions, things like that. And that's, you know, sort of the main way they can disaffiliate as well. If they're part of any boards um, or committees or task forces, anything like that, we're asking for their support in disaffiliating as well. What if they say, well, it's actually better if I stay. That way I can do the negotiating and work it out. What would you say to that? I'm Personally, I think it's a very individualistic take. You know, I believe in self-reliance, but also there's so much an individual can do. And when you're a Black person in those spaces, you might be lifted up, but it comes to the detriment of others, right? Maybe you have a seat at the table, but 10 Black people 
won't have a seat at the table because you got yours. I think the best thing that Black alumni can do is stand in solidarity with. That's what elective voice is. And you know, maybe um, we could all, everybody on this committee has enough knowledge to make their own stand, but there's a reason that we're all here together. And it's because, you know, we have to, to share and collaborate. And there is a sense of safety in knowing that we are concerned with our well-being in ways that folks that don't look like us are not. And so I would please push you, our Black alumni, to reach out to Black students to see what they need and, and maybe not try to take that on all on by themselves, because that is kind of traumatic as well to think that you can solve racism. I do want to say that a lot of the reason personally, and I, I think I echo this statement for all of everyone in the coalition, is that a lot of the work that we're doing is like Cher said before, to make you are a better place for students of color. I recently got asked what I would say to an incoming Black UR student. And I guess I would say just stay on your toes. Understand that when you come into this university, um, you do not have, at least right now, you don't have the privilege to be just a student that there are more students after you um, relying on you and why. And while it, it shouldn't be that way, that's that's how it is. But continue to try to change that, to change it systematically, to change it in your classrooms and wherever you are to continue to advocate for yourselves. Because a lot of times at this university, you won't find other people to do that for you. And so learning how to do that, that's what this university taught me is how to advocate for not only myself, but my peers and constantly speaking out against things that I rather not see because I'm the type of person that wants to leave a mark for other students to thrive off of. And so we've been recently, we've just been seeing black admission go down. It's not a surprise with everything that's been going on. This university has great resources, great academics. The social conditions aren't the best. However, this is a great place for black students to elevate their education, but also a great place for them to understand how to be activists in the larger community once they leave Richmond. What is it like doing this work with a black president? I think, you know, it can be frustrating in some ways that like you would think the black president would be, you know, our biggest advocate. I think that's what some people might expect. I think we as students all know that like university leadership functions as university leadership, no matter who's in that position, really about that structure. And the way that structure is set up is honestly that the president doesn't have much power, you know, excuse me, we would be remiss not to say this. President Crusher is of course the head of the university as president, but it's really not his decision. What was emphasized in that email was that it is the board of trustees decision not to remove these names. And so I think President Crusher has sort of been made the fall guy for this. He's on his way out. This is his last semester. So it does seem very intentional that the board of trustees decided to make this decision right before he leaves and they're gonna pin it on a black president, which you know I think is a pattern that you see in a lot of places in a lot of organizations, companies, um, universities, things like that. They're going to pin it on the black leader and then use it as an excuse not to have another one, which representation is not everything, but you know, sometimes it does have an impact. And this I think is definitely going to be used as an excuse not to have another black president, to not have black people in leadership positions at UR. And so it does seem very intentional that they release this now as he's on his way out. So while I think we have our disagreements with President Crutcher, you know, it's ultimately not even about him. It's really the board of trustees that have set him up in this way to be, you know, I guess the face of the university choosing to ignore its students. They really set it up that way, but it's really the board of trustees and their decision. So 
I don't know. I think for me, at least it's like, yes, you know, we'd love to possibly see more support from President Crutcher. But I mean, we ultimately know that at the end of the day, it's not his decision. And he's just sort of being painted as the figurehead of all this. I will say, though, that I don't have at like I have sympathy for that position. but I don't have that much sympathy because he does make 800K a year. I think one thing, too, when our organizing, one thing we really wanted to make sure that we did is get to the root of things and understand that. President Crutcher just serves as a scapegoat. While he is complacent and while he is definitely like involved, he isn't the main problem. And so I think that sparked their attention too, to where they wanted our anger to be misdirected, where we would kind of fall short in that. And so we wouldn't really get to the problem. But now I'm in classes with students who are daughters of the board of trustees. And to hear me talk about their father, it's a little, um, a little dicey, um, but, it, it's it's also like nothing against your daddy, but this is someone who is on the board. I'm not coming for your father. I'm coming for the board member. And so I think it's really shocking to people. And a lot of people like while we're organizing, we're getting very, very quick on our feet with like what we know and the intel that we, we have so much intel and we have so many ears to the ground everywhere. And I think that's what's shaking people up a little bit is that we know where the real issue is. Having proper targets and organizing, y'all, I mean, to the fact that you named the board of trustees, you named one of them that has his name on a building. What's his name again? Queely. Paul Queely. Yep. Yeah. I mean, that's the really important part because it is going to make people uncomfortable. And that's what you have to do right now to push your policies. And it's important to not just change minds and attitudes, but to actually change these policies, rules and regulations that then will change how that budget functions. And that's what all of this is really about, right? Let's, let's get some of these resources to Black folks. You all are already running things. Let's get you the proper resources so that you can function. Before we close out, definitely want to make sure, how can people follow you on social media? So Instagram has been our main sort of social media platform, and that is at Protect Our Web. Um, and then we also have a link tree, which is linked in our bio, and that address is Linktree, so L-I-N-K-T-R dot E-E slash Protect Our Web. And we keep all of our sort of relevant documents and events and things like that linked up in there as well. Shira, Simone, Jesse, Jordan, thank you so much for your time today um, and for your work uh, these last few weeks, months, years that you've been doing this. Thanks to all your comrades for really building this work together and for demonstrating that we can get this done with a collective voice and a collective movement. And I just really appreciate y'all coming on the show. Thank, thank you, you so much for having us. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks again for our guest from the University of Richmond of the Black Student Coalition. And we'll catch you next week right here on Race Capital on WRIRLP 97.3 FM, Richmond Independent Radio with me, Chelsea Higgs-Wise. And me, Kalia Harris. And me, Naomi Isaac. Thanks for listening to Race Capital.